It's time for Legally Speaking, our regular segment with barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting stories on the agenda for this week. I'm just reading here. The Gabriola Island Local Trust pursues a fine for failing to remove a seawall. What's happening here? Yes, indeed. What's happening here is a legal odyssey. <laughs> so this case began back in 2012. Uh, and indeed, it involves the Gabriola, Gabriola Island Local Trust uh, and a house, in fact, on Mudge Island. And for those uh, listeners that are wondering, Mudge Island is uh, wedged sort of between Vancouver Island and Gabriola Island. Perhaps uh, for uh, administrative reasons, they made it uh, subject to uh, the zoning laws from this uh, Gabriola Island uh, Trust. Uh, and so the local government, that uh, island's trust, uh, passed some laws back in 2008, uh, including one that uh, required that no structures be built within 30 meters from the natural barrier of the sea. So that's how things uh, started. Hmm. Uh, and uh, in 2012, they determined uh, that a family there had a seawall uh, which was something protecting their uh, waterfront property from erosion, and that the seawall was closer to the sea than 30 meters. And so they told them to remove it. Uh, that eventually wound up in court, uh, and the uh, couple that owned the home argued that there was a common law right to protect your property against erosion. Uh, and it was a riparian right, they argued. Uh, and... The judge at the original trial agreed with them and found that the uh, Island Trust did not have authority to prevent them from putting up this or keeping this seawall to prevent uh, their property from being eroded. Well, the uh, litigious Gabriola Island Local Trust Committee didn't much like that outcome, and so they appealed it to the BC Court of Appeal, where they won. The Court of Appeal found uh, that while there may be that common law right, it is something which might be relevant as in a dispute between private individuals, but that the provincial government has legislative authority to override that and found that they had done so. Uh, and so then in uh, 2021, again, uh, the couple now ordered by the Court of Appeal removed the seawall. Well, they didn't, <laughs> and the case continued. Uh, and uh, eventually, the case wound up uh, back in front of a uh, judge in chambers in the Court of Appeal with a decision that just came out uh, just uh, yesterday, uh, dealing with whether there should be a contempt finding for not removing the seawall, and if so, what the penalty for that contempt should be. Now, a number of things had made that uh, more challenging, and I should say, that, that the Islands Trust was acting, asking for a fairly substantial uh, fine. Uh, they wanted a fine of $7,500, and they wanted uh, uh, an increased uh, fine if the seawall wasn't removed by a, a future date. Hmm. But a number of things made that more challenging, uh, and it gives a, some insight into the issues that can arise when there is an order to do something that might be very hard to do. Uh, because in this case, several intervening factors happened. First of all, sadly, uh, one of the two property owners who was elderly was diagnosed with dementia and passed away. The other remaining property owner uh, was in his uh, late 80s uh, and had all manner of uh, medical uh, conditions that were affecting him. 
when the couple's daughter realized what was going on, she moved out from Toronto to try to help with the seawall and made various attempts to hire somebody to remove it. She contacted 10 different contractors, nine of whom said they're not interested, they're not doing it. Hmm. A tenth showed up, but their equipment was incapable of removing the seawall. Uh, the uh, daughter that got a uh, assessment done that showed that there would be great risk of environmental harm to the foreshore and mature trees would have to be pulled out because they had grown into this very old structure mm-hmm. uh, and uh, tried to persuade the Court of Appeal that they should reconsider their decision. Now, first of all, on that front, uh, there's a concept people should know about, which is the concept of a court being functus or done. Uh, And that means once they've made a final order, the court can't just go back and say, well, I'm going to change that, even if new information comes to light. And so the Court of Appeal found, look, despite that report, uh, we have no authority to do anything about this. We've made a final order, which would leave only, I suppose, the Supreme Court of Canada was unlikely to intervene in the case of a seawall. Yes. The daughter, for her part, then tried with a jackhammer, uh, and sledgehammer to remove the seawall <laughs> herself. Okay. Uh, uh, unfortunately, that failed. Although it was clear she tried very hard, there are apparently pictures from a bylaw officer, and she described the seawall as being it's two feet high and 37 feet long, and she described it as being, quote, about as strong as the Great Pyramid of Giza. <laughs> and so just could not get this thing out. Uh, and so back they come to court, and there are multiple adjournments, sort of uh, all these efforts to try to hire contractors, the daughter try to get it out. And so they're back to, well, what should we do about this? And eventually what the court has, what the court did is they did impose a fine, but a much smaller one than what the Islands Trust was asking for. They imposed a fine of $2,500 on the elderly uh, remaining owner of the uh, now widower, uh, of the owner of this property uh, and have said that, uh, well, if he doesn't get the thing removed by October, the end of October, there may be a, an additional fine of $7,500. And so it's a really interesting case because it raises these issues of contempt and practical impossibility, right? Uh, and the daughter's saying, look, I don't know what else I can do to get this seawall removed. Uh, and the court, for, for its, from its perspective, is saying, look, we need to maintain the authority of the court. There's been an order that this would be removed. We can't revisit the order no matter what new evidence there might be because we're functus, we're finished. Uh, and so the court has said, you know, well, I, presumably there's got to be some method of removing this with some degree of heavy equipment, even if it might be a great expense. Uh, and so that's where the matter currently sits. Uh, you've got the daughter with the sledgehammer, the elderly infirmed widower, who's the remaining owner of the property, and contractors not willing to do the work, uh, I think out of concern, either it's impossible, their equipment doesn't meet the requirements, or it's going to be hazardous or cause all kinds of other damage. And so that's where the case currently remains. And so we'll need to wait and see what comes of that uh, on Mudge Island. Uh, one Sad possibility, of course, is that the the remaining uh, owner uh, of this property, uh, it sounds like his health is in uh, pretty uh, serious uh, shape. Um, If he passes away, uh, then I suppose it will be back to the Gabriel Islands Local Trust Committee to decide whether they wish to start this all over again uh, with whoever becomes the owner of the 
property with the uh, very, very strong seawall somewhere on Mudge Island. Uh, but it does raise a host of interesting legal issues about contempt. How should that be used? What penalty should be imposed when somebody doesn't comply with a very difficult-to-comply-with order? Uh, and what do we do moving forward? Because there are a number of sort of uh, legal uh, hard places that aren't moving, right? The court can't change its order. Uh, the, uh, so the order is final. Uh, and uh, you've got a circumstance where it may or may not be physically possible to get somebody to come and do this work. Uh, and so I imagine that the, the case is probably not over. There's no date set for the removal of it. Nobody's been found who can remove the seawall. Um, so we'll wait and see whether the uh, daughter continues to chip away at it uh, or whether they find a contractor uh, or whether the elderly uh, father uh, is back in court uh, come October, uh, facing a, an additional fine uh, if he doesn't manage to get the extremely well-entrenched seawall uh, off the property. So that's the uh, the case from uh, Mudge Island uh, and uh, claim for civil contempt. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll continue with Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next on the agenda, Michael, the property transfer tax being imposed on a refugee who's lived in B.C. since 1995. Set this one up for us. Yeah, so this, I think, could be an example of a seriously unintended consequence uh, where a person's trying to seek some remedy in court that really requires a political response. Uh, and the background of this is that uh, we had uh, a few years ago now this foreign buyer's tax uh, imposed in British Columbia, and it applies uh, to properties purchased in uh, now uh, the uh, Greater Victoria Capital Regional District, Greater Vancouver, the Okanagan, Nanaimo, uh, various places in the uh, province. And it was intended uh, to deter sort of foreign speculation in property, right? So the idea of people buying property as an investment and not living here, that kind of thing. Uh, but the way this tax is drafted is that it imposes a 20% tax uh, under the Property Transfer Tax Act to anyone who purchases a property in those locations uh, who is not either a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident. That's just how it's currently drafted. And it had what can only be, to my mind, an unintended consequence uh, in terms of how it impacts on somebody who's a refugee. Uh, and this case, which is a, a, it's in the form of a application by the province to strike out a constitutional claim, was uh, the claim was brought by a man who was a refugee from Iran, uh, and he uh, moved to Canada in 1995 uh, and sought political asylum, which he was granted. Uh, he's lived in British Columbia since 1995, so this is not somebody who's some opportunistic real estate speculator. Mm -hmm. He's done very well living in British Columbia. Uh, he's obviously uh, worked hard, and he was purchasing a home in West Vancouver, the home was expensive. I guess every home in West Vancouver is expensive, but this one was $6.6 million. Uh, and he was uh, purchasing it in 2019. And now, I should say uh, that the man did apply to become a permanent resident. According to the uh, facts in the case, he applied on more than one occasion 
And on the last occasion he applied was in 2017. But anyone who, uh, I guess, has uh, had experience trying to get their passport renewed can realize how quickly the federal government operates on these sort of matters. Uh, And so even though he applied uh, to uh, become a permanent resident yet again in 2017, that process didn't get completed until 2022. Uh, It's hard to believe, but that's how long it took. Uh, And so what it meant is that the man received a tax bill of $1.32 million Wow! uh, on the theory that he was somehow a property speculator uh, on the basis that he was a foreign buyer, Mm -hmm. right? Despite the fact that he's lived here since 1995. Yeah. Uh, And so the man brought uh, this uh, application trying to uh, make constitutional uh, claims on the basis that either he was um, discriminated against on a analogous ground to some grounds that are uh, pr- discrimination is prohibited against in Section 15 of the Charter, and also a Section 7 uh, argument under the uh, Charter, trying to find some basis to avoid having to pay $1.32 million. Yeah. Uh, and the claim the province or the lawyers for the province were almost successful in getting this all just struck out as uh, being a hopeless uh, effort. Uh, the court uh, did say, well, there's some sort of glimmer of hope if there's an amendment on one of the arguments. And so gave the man some additional time to uh, amend the, the claim to continue uh, with the constitutional argument. But the case is also an example of how you know, the the court is not there to determine whether policy is good or not, right? Judges aren't there to decide, do I like this law? Or is this sensible? Or should it be this? Uh, there are, of course, some constraints, constitutional constraints. Uh, but the policy decision is a political one, right? Uh, and really what this case calls out for, and hopefully somebody's listening, um, is that when if we if we conclude that the foreign buyers tax is a, a good idea uh, politically, and the idea there being to discourage uh, sort of speculative investments in real estate, it cannot be that that policy was intended to impose a twenty percent tax on uh, long term refugees who are trying to buy a home. Yeah, that just cannot be what yeah. this was intended to do. Yeah, and so. Hopefully, somebody is not somebody at the political level is thinking about this, right? Because when the case sort of marches along in court, the the entire analysis by everyone involved, the judge, the lawyers on both sides, is a legal analysis, right? Is sort of is this constitutionally permissible? What are the limits of Section Seven and Section you know Fifteen of the Charter? Uh, is this kind of a tax prohibited on constitutional grounds? which is all fine, and it's good we have that system in place, but none of that is answering that just big fairness question. Is this right? Is this really what was intended by this piece of legislation? Uh, And so it wouldn't take much, it seems to me, to make a change to this piece of legislation in a way that would completely maintain its purpose, right, to avoid people who are using you know, real estate as some sort of a, a speculative uh, investment opportunity, while not uh, unintentionally taxing long-term refugees. Uh, and so you can easily imagine how that could be fixed. Uh, you know, add to the description of who's exempt to it refugees or even 
refugees who have resided in British Columbia for pick some period of time. How many no. years would you like the person living here before it's absolutely apparent uh, that the person who fled death in Iran uh, is not here to speculate in a house they're no. trying to buy. No. Uh, and so hopefully somebody's listening or somebody reviews this uh, and uh, makes a, a change to the legislation to fix the problem, and hopefully they do it retroactively because we're not trying to uh, impose a 20% tax on refugees trying to buy a home, uh, and uh, that really needs to be fixed, and it seems unlikely that's going to get fixed in a legal argument. That's a political argument, uh, and so hopefully somebody's listening uh, and does something about it. Yeah, it's sort of a bizarre situation that I would have never thought of. But obviously there's going to be some sort of a means test involved with the refugee application process because the person having no means or similar to no means, I would suspect, is one of the criteria for coming here in the first place. So why do it twice? Yeah, I mean, th this man, uh, the background here is that he was a political, uh, he sought political asylum, uh, and he described himself, and this was part of the argument, as stateless, effectively, hmm. uh, because his evidence was if he went back to Iran, he'd be killed. Uh, and he had applied on more than one occasion to having been here as a refugee for many years to become a permanent resident the third time in 2017, and just it took years for that to get processed. Now, Happily, as of last year, it's processed. He's a permanent resident in Canada, and hopefully he'll become a, a citizen in Canada, right? Obviously, a hardworking and successful person we're lucky to have here. Uh, but uh, we need to get this legislation fixed so we're not uh, unintentionally uh, punishing uh, people like this man. That just cannot be uh, what was intended uh, by that tax. Absolutely. Next story, a new trial ordered following a conviction for criminal contempt to deal with the issue of a, quote, officially induced error. Lots of stuff there. There's a whole bunch packed into that, yes. So this particular case was an uh, Indigenous man uh, who was uh, convicted of criminal contempt uh, for uh, allegedly violating uh, an injunction not to block the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, and that goes from back in 2019. Now, the issue, what the issue there is that uh, criminal contempt uh, includes an element of mens rea, like the person must be intentionally doing something wrong. That's kind of what the criminal law in, in virtually every respect is concerned with, right? That's, you know, we're concerned with people uh, doing things intentionally wrong, not tripping and falling into others or... <laughs> you know, doing something by mistake, right? That's sort of what we're concerned with before we start punishing people and putting them in prison. Yeah. Uh, and so this man, uh, his evidence at his trial um, was that uh, he was a uh, serving as a elder. He was a uh, watchman that he was, uh, he was 70 years old, by the way. Uh, and he says he was uh, attending uh, where this protest was going on uh, to engage in a uh, pipe ceremony uh, to keep the peace. Uh, and significantly, he says that he spoke to the police to ask them about that. Uh, and his evidence was uh, that uh, based on previous conversations with the police, he understood that he had permission to conduct this type of ceremony. Uh, and because of those conversations, as far as he knew on that day, he wasn't violating anything. That was his evidence. Now, he was nonetheless convicted, which is what resulted in this appeal to the Court of Appeal. 
And the legal issue on the appeal was what you've identified, which is that concept of officially induced error. So what is that? Uh, well, the concept of uh, an officially induced error, it has six elements. So there's a lot here to unpack, but mm. it has to be an error of law or mixed fact in law. Uh, it must be that the accused considered the legal consequences of their action and then got advice from an appropriate official, right? You, you, you couldn't uh, get a, you know, advice from the uh, postman that you're okay to show up at the blockade or something, right? That's probably not going to work. Mm-hmm. That the advice was reasonable, right? So if you had some obviously wacko advice, that's not going to apply. That the advice was erroneous and that the person relied upon the erroneous advice. Uh, and the concept there, right, the court analogized to that concept that we've talked about before of entrapment, uh, where a person does the physical elements of something, uh, but uh, because they were entrapped into doing it, it would be unfair or unjust to convict them of it. Uh, and so here, the man's evidence amounted to, look, I spoke to the police about whether I was allowed to conduct this ceremony, um, and so would that would the police be an appropriate official? Probably, right? Was that advice reasonable? Probably, right? There's nothing obviously bizarre about that advice. Was it wrong? Possibly, <laughs> right? Uh, and did the person rely on it? Well, that was his evidence that he relied on it. And interestingly, there was video evidence of what the man uh, had done at the ceremony. Uh, and uh, his evidence about what he was doing corresponded with what was on video uh, and showed that the man initially was not with the group of protesters, that he was doing this ceremony. He moved uh, after a period of time to where these protesters were, conducted the ceremony, locked hands in a circle, and then was leaving. And so there was scope for what he was arguing to be consistent with the evidence there, right? And so the Court of Appeal has ordered a new trial uh, on the basis that a judge should consider his evidence in terms of whether it met that test uh, for being officially induced error uh, and whether he should properly have been convicted. So that's what officially induced error is, and uh, we'll, we, we will await the new trial to see what happens with this 70-year-old Indigenous man uh, who conducted this ceremony at the protest. All right. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. A pleasure, Michael. Learn something new every week. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too.